0: On today's episode of the SSPX Podcast, we'll start our last batch of episodes, those dealing with the basic why not questions about what is reasonable to believe. Today we'll be looking at the basic premise of paganism. Why paganism, that is polytheism, animism, spiritualism, even if they have been at times very popular in history and seem to be trendy now, simply don't make sense to the reasonable person we'll see how, based on logic, the ideas that are inherent in Hinduism, Buddhism, and native or aboriginal spiritualities simply don't match up to reality. You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to as well as all of the resources we're posting, but if you can help with a one-time or small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Father Reuter for episode number 38 of the Apologetic series here on the SSPX podcast. Well, Father Reuter, it has been a, a little while since we've had you on and we are rounding the corner towards home on the end of this series. Thank you for taking the time to uh, join us again here as we are uh, squarely in the middle of, of Advent, almost to the end of Advent. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be back. Pleasure is all mine like usual. Uh, last time we were talking with you we were talking about uh the basis for believing that the Bible is true and and you turned me onto uh a great book that I've been slowly making my way through. I'm a slow reader. My wife always makes a massive amount of fun of me that I have more books started than I have finished, but um anyway, thank you again for the uh introduction to the Old Testament Go by ahead. uh uh Petrie, right? The author yes, that was Grant Petrie. It's, I'm about halfway through it. It's heavy, but it's great. So thank you again for that recommendation. Good, Excellent. I'm glad you're reading it. It's a very good book. Yeah. Uh, today we're talking about not the Bible, not about Christianity, but we're starting a section of, I think, four episodes on false religions, what, what Catholics would consider false religions at the very least. or And by the end of the episode, you will see that it, they are, in fact, false religions. Uh, and we're going to start w- broadly with a term that's called paganism. Uh, Paganism is often used as kind of a pejorative term. I think it has been used pejoratively throughout history, but let's start with the principles like we always do, Father. What does it mean to be pagan?
1: Good. Yes, we want to ultimately answer the question is, you know, why not paganism? You know, we're seeing a rise in paganism in the modern world, the post Christian world. And so we need to answer people's legitimate objections. Why not be a pagan? You know, some think that Christianity has failed and they're turning back to ancient paganism. So, to understand why this is not the solution, we must first ask what is paganism? And paganism is, so to speak, defined by what pagans actually reject. In fact, the strongest argument against paganism is to point out what they reject. And that it is unreasonable to reject what they reject. And then we'll also see at the end that the solutions which they propose to the problems in the world are not valid solutions. They don't actually present real solutions. So we will first define paganism and then give elements of commonality between various forms of paganism. Then we will show the common truths, which they all reject. We'll give some indication of how paganism began, and then give an overview of a few different kinds of paganism. So paganism, in in the broadest sense, includes all religions other than the true religion revealed by God, and, of course, in the New Testament, by our Lord Jesus Christ in the more strict sense, it's all religions except Christianity, Judaism, and Mohammedism. The term is also used in some cases as an equivalent term to polytheism. So the point here is that when we, when we speak of paganism in the proper sense, we're speaking of quote-unquote religions which are not monotheist. And monotheism are those who believe in one God. So this includes the Jews, the Muslims, and Christians. Now, of course, the Jews and Muslims do not believe in the one true God. Therefore, they have false religions. And you will see later in the series a podcast against these false religions. But because they do have some idea, some concept, though a false concept, of one God... They are false religions and not paganism as such. The term pagan was coined by the early Christians to categorize those who adhered to other religious practices rather than the Christian religion as revealed by Jesus Christ. It comes from the Latin paganus or pagani, and it means those who live in the country, and it was used to indicate the fact that Christianity took root in the cities, and those who lived in the country did not receive the message of the gospel as quickly or as robustly, so those who were living in the country did not accept Christianity, they were called pagans.
0: That is really fascinating. There's a, there's a book I've been reading about um, basically the history of Christendom, uh, and and how it spread and 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 the spread of Christendom throughout europe and and how that influenced europe and and one of the points that the authors make and for the like I can't remember the author now was he was saying that at its core, Christianity is actually an urban religion, which is something I yes. they had not considered before. but the apostles went to these these centers of, I guess not industry, but trade, you know the, these hubs of trade. and from there, you know, very early on, you kind of have to do a cost-benefit analysis, and and they're going to go out into the countryside much, much later. So it's interesting that pagan comes from that kind of a concept.
1: Yes. Yes. Man is social by nature. We need one another to be perfected. Men live in cities. It's a normal thing, you know, the setting where you can interdepend and rely on other people. Rome, Antioch, Jerusalem, Alexandria, these great centers were cities and that's where the gospel really took root.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to boil down all of paganism. I know that there's lots of different flavors and we're going to get into those, but what are the main characteristics of paganism if if we can even say there are some main characteristics?
1: Yes, there's certainly some common threads which you know pass through all the different pagan systems. You know, one thing we we do want to note is that paganism is not. One specific religion. So there's no one, you know, paganism. It rather indicates, you know, religious beliefs which have certain things in common. And it encompasses two principal characteristics or or teachings. One is animism. And when spoken of as referring to religious systems, this term indicates religious practices concerned with worshipping or devotion towards the natural world, the physical universe, various creatures. And for the animist, they see these creatures as having a spiritual principle. So the word animist or animism comes from anima, which is Latin for soul. And this system holds that there is a type of spiritual soul in all material things. So rather than seeing the wonders of nature, the things that God created as effects of a all-wise, all-powerful God, we look at the wonders, or they look at the wonders, and they stop there, and they see the wonders as having their own spiritual soul, their own destiny, their own principle of being, so to speak, which is not from another. So every object is controlled by its own independent spirit. And this, of course, leads to pantheism. All things become God. The deity, the divine principle, and the material cannot be really separated one from another. God is imminent in all of nature. And so pantheism, you know, God is the material world, so to speak. And there's also panentheism, which considers that all things are in God. But in both, we have the same common error which is you can't distinguish really God from his creation. So God is all things or all things are in God, but there's no clear distinction between God and creatures. They create a universe. So there's one principle that you'll see moving throughout the various pagan systems, but also, and that which may be more common to us is polytheism. So another principle of paganism which is a belief and veneration in many gods, you know, small g gods, goddesses, fairies, elves, animals, ancestral spirits. So within paganism, there are many deities, both male and female. And uh, these deities will embody forces of nature, aspects of culture, facets of human psychology. And they're depicted often in human forms with human vices, human strengths, maybe superhuman powers. So they're not seen as perfect, but they are seen as more powerful than man, embodying certain principles. And the pagans, the polytheists, will hold that they have to offer some veneration to these deities in order to be protected or to, to please them so as not to be, to be punished by them. So with paganism, we have animism and polytheism, and traditional polytheists are what we're most familiar with. Insofar as the early Christians, when they coined the word pagans, they they were referring primarily to the Romans and Greeks, who had their canon of false gods. They were polytheist, and so that was the kind of the original object of the definition pagan were those who were still worshiping many false gods. Notably, they were in Greece and Rome. And so, these people had many personal gods. The Greeks and Romans, we know that they finally kind of codified their gods into 12 gods that ruled over everything. But again, this idea of of many gods who are not these supreme beings.
0: Okay. Are there any uh, commonalities in what pagans reject as a whole
1: yes yes and it really of course you know mirrors what kind of they accept so all pagans unreasonably reject the most fundamental natural truths of god's existence and they likewise unreasonably reject divine revelation and why do i say unreasonably of course in apologetics we don't want to be offensive But unreasonable is really the right word, because it takes us back to the purpose of apologetics. The purpose of apologetics, as you have seen, is a science, and we know it's as ancient as the church itself, even though the word apologetics is fairly modern. The the science, the practice of defending the faith is as ancient as the church itself. And its purpose is to demonstrate that Catholic dogma is rationally acceptable, that it's reasonable to accept Catholic dogma, and that it's unreasonable not to accept it. Now, of course, it takes an act of faith to actually accept it, but apologetics shows that it would be unreasonable not to accept it. And Catholic dogma, as you have already seen, consists in those truths found in sacred scripture and in tradition as presented by the Catholic Church in her ordinary and extraordinary magisterium. And this revelation teaches there is one God whom we must adore. And the New Testament teaches there's likewise one church which we must enter. And all this was prefigured in the Old Testament. As we went through the theology of history, we know that there's all these types in the Old Testament which are preparing us for the revelation, the fullness of revelation, which indicates we must enter one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. But as it explicitly taught in the New Testament, we must enter one church in order to be saved. And this same revelation teaches us a moral code, which means behavior that we must do and other behavior we must avoid if we want to be happy in this life and in the next life. And in addition to rejecting revelation, They also reject a fundamental truth of reason, and that is that God exists. You already saw with Father Robinson the five proofs for the existence of God. So man, with the unaided human reason, is able to come to know with certainty that there is one God who is distinct from nature. And we think of the words of St. Paul. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, his eternal power and divinity. So Vatican I declared it to be a truth of faith, that yes, we can know with reason alone that there is a God distinct from nature. And the pagans fail to come to even this natural knowledge of one God who is distinct from nature. And consequently, if you don't accept there's one God distinct from nature, you cannot have any accurate knowledge of the natural law, which means any accurate knowledge of that law written into nature by which man is able to be happy. So the two things which they reject is, yes, that there is a God distinct from nature and that we can know him by reason and revelation and that there's a natural law which comes from the nature God created. And the reason Vatican I was able to define this was because this teaching is found in sacred scripture and, of course, supported by
0: reason. this is really the, the the basis that we keep coming back to over and over again about about apologetics is that, that this is all rooted in in reason or yes. at the very least, it is not contrary to reason. Yep, um, exactly. It's interesting to me that you're up the epistle of the Romans in, in an episode about paganism, but that was what Paul was doing. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. So exactly. we can learn a lot about how to work with pagans by reading Paul. And I assume that's why you bring him into this episode?
1: Exactly. Because he was writing to the Romans who were pagans. And like you said, he is the apostle of the Gentiles. He was given a special mission by our Lord to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And the first chapter has, you know, some very enlightening elements, which I would like to, you know, incorporate into this episode. We already quoted one small part of it. And we, give also, we would like to also give a few more um, verses from this same chapter, because I think these verses will help solidify three truths. One, that we can know God by reason alone. Two, I think St. Paul gives some indication of how paganism actually began. And then three, he notes that morality is linked to doctrine. So we'll go through these few verses from St. Paul a bit more thoroughly to help understand these truths taught by St. Paul to the pagan Romans. So Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. His eternal power also and the divinity so that they are inexcusable. So St. Paul, and of course we know, he totally goes to speaking through St. Paul, tells us that by observing the effects of God's creation, looking, wondering at the created world, we must reasonably come to the knowledge that God exists. So here we already see a rejection of polytheism and animism. Polytheists think there's many gods. Animists think that nature has this divine characteristic. No, through observing nature, we come to know the true God. Of course, we also know, as you have already seen, that mankind as a whole was never left alone without the help of revelation. There was never a time in history where mankind was left to his pure unaided reason. Man could, by his unaided reason, come to know the existence of God. But since the beginning, God, in his mercy, always gave revelation. There was primitive revelation to Adam, which is the patrimony of all mankind. Patriarchal revelation to the patriarchs, giving more details about the redemption. Mosaic revelation, Mosaic law, preparing one people to become those who ushered in Jesus Christ, and then Christian revelation in the fullness of time, which is for all mankind of all time, which explicitly requires that we enter the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So pagans are rejecting really two things here, what they can know by reason. And of course, we know it's difficult with reason to know these things because of our wounds, but they also reject revelation right. which is this letter from god to mankind and in rejecting these two realities they are lost in animism and polytheism mm-hmm.
0: and it is interesting that that early on you know you look back at uh you look back at at, at the israelites while moses was up on the mountain and they so quickly so easily again uh, me being judgmental in 20 23 uh so quickly turn back towards this, this paganism, these, these pagan practices. And, and it seems like God is constantly just pulling them back, pulling them back. But that, that's a strong pull from them early on. Yeah.
1: Yes, and that's a big part of our series on the theology of history, which is see yeah. this cyclical movement of men falling back into paganism, God pulling them back, this constant, so to speak, struggle between you know God and man. So we see this very early in the history of, war, of the world, you know, primitive revelation, patriarchal revelation. It was very quickly and easily corrupted and constantly corrupted. And people were constantly turning away from the worship of the true God to the worship of the earth and many gods. So these errors are constantly recycling in the cycle of history. So we ask ourselves, if man can know God by reason, if God gave us revelation, how come this constant corruption this falling away from the truths of reason and revelation? And the answer follows something which you saw earlier in the series, is the doctrine of original sin. You know, man is fallen. Man has blindness in his mind, malice in his will, concupiscence in the concupiscible, So, irascibility and the irascible. So, man has these wounds. And with blindness, it's hard to know the truth. With malice, we have an inclination to do what's evil. Concupiscence, a disorder desire for pleasure. Irascibility, a disorder relationship. So, that we become angry too quickly. So, as we know, the moral life is meant to be a consequence of our doctrinal or intellectual life. And because it's hard to live the moral life, especially if we're not leaning on God's grace, I mean, without God's grace, it's it's impossible to live the moral life with any consistency for a long period of time. So because people are, you know, weighed down by the four wounds of original sin, they 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 sin as as we all do. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But man needs to have harmony in his life. So if he's not going to live according to the dictates of the natural law, or the dictates of revelation, well, if man doesn't live as he thinks, he starts to think as he lives. So we see here just on a basic principle of the harmony we need in our life, that people, if they're not actually living the natural law, living the the moral law as revealed by God, they start to corrupt their ideas about God so as to have a certain harmony in their life. And so that's really what happened constantly and happens constantly throughout history is man is to kind of conform his ideas to his conduct. But man is essentially a spiritual being. St. Augustine notes that. St. Augustine says that there is a God-shaped hole in every person. Everybody has this sense that they're a Mm. creature. They, They need a higher power. And therefore, in rejecting the God as he revealed himself, in rejecting the God of the natural law, they then create a God according to their own fancies.
0: Saint Paul in Saint Paul in his in his epistles, also, I don't know if he does this on purpose or inadvertently, but he kind of gives a history or a development of, of paganism, doesn't he? Yes,
1: yes. Um, yes, he does. He does. He um we can go Romans one twenty one because that when they knew God, they have not glorified him as God. Or given thanks, but became vain in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. For professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the likeness of the image of a corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed beasts, and of creeping things. So St. Paul basically says, you can know God by reason. Because they did not worship God, because they did not give glory to God, they started worshiping creatures. Because of their worshiping of creatures, they gave themselves up to all these unnatural vices so common to paganism. And so what St. Paul says to the Romans is typical of all paganism, a failure to know and worship God, creating false gods by which you become your own God, as we'll see with Hinduism, everybody has their own gods. And then because you don't believe in God or the natural law, your morality is totally up to you.
0: So those are the common elements of, of paganism. Can we start to look at some of the various pagan religions? And, and obviously there's hundreds, if not thousands. So we're just going to kind of look at the uh, greatest hits, the, the exactly. billboard top 50 pagans.
1: Yes, if there's, you know, some 30,000 different Christian denominations, we can only imagine yeah. how many, you know, pagans there are. Um yeah. But yeah, we'll look at some of them and maybe some which are more popular, more trending in the West, so to speak. So as mentioned, the types of paganism common to the early Christians was the polytheism of the Greeks and Romans. They had their canons of gods. Many others also had canons of gods, the Vikings and the Aztecs. So there were those who had just a list of countless gods which embodied Human psychology or nature or some some power they wanted to try to personify. so in this traditional polytheism, not everything had a soul. They saw these these beings as distinct from the created world, and these many gods all had certain charges over the material world. so these are the romans the the Greeks, the Aztecs, and people offered worship to these false gods. You know, the virtue of religion is so innate to man. Man depends on God for everything. Man has a sense that he owes something back to a higher being. So those are the Greeks and Romans. And in the East, we also have the Hindus and Buddhists. Hinduism and Buddhism. Some of the most ancient, you know, pagans. And both have their roots in Brahmanism. And Brahmanism is a complex religious and social system we have to focus, it is social, it you know, comes from one part of the world that grew out of a polytheistic nature worship in ancient India. So we have certain social customs in ancient India, we have polytheism. Some claim that the polytheism was brought by an in Aryan invasion, of, you know, 2,000 years before Christ. But either way, it's a very cultural religion based off the worship of nature. And then it's, you know, changed throughout time, but it comes to us in the common term of Hinduism. Okay.
0: So, I guess let's, let's dive in there. there. What, what is Hinduism?
1: So, Hinduism is a polytheistic system of belief from India. Okay. So, the word Hindu derives from the Greek mispronunciation of the ri- river Sindhu which delineates the western part of the indian subcontinent so hinduism is a, noose, a loosely knit family of religious beliefs based on the veda which was a collection of orally preserved religious and philosophical text from 1500 bc the word veda means knowledge and each book has a corresponding ritualistic book So, some on metaphysics, some on mysticism. So, we'll go through the general beliefs, which will just help us understand what they reject, in fact. So, most Hindus recognized a supreme Brahman who underlies all reality, as well as countless other gods. So, what is this Brahman? Well, whatever reality is, is basically held up by this principle. So this eternal principle behind all instabilities. So gives support to all change. So never increased, never diminished. In fact, he kind of sounds like our notion of prime matter in Aristotelian philosophy. Mm. This this kind of principle behind everything, but not truly distinct from everything, which of course our notion of God would be. Likewise, you know, we can note that opinions differ on whether the countless Hindu gods are distinct from Brahman or just facets of his infinite formless nature. In the final assessment, they see Brahman and man's soul, which they call Atman, really as indistinguishable. So everything is one basically for them. So human souls are as eternal as Brahman. Brahman includes everything which exists, whatever it is. Hinduism, which defines the Atman as self or self-awareness. You know, that self-awareness is part of Brahman. You know, Christians, we teach there's a transcendent God, infinitely above all things, creator and distinct. You know, the Hindus will say, no, Brahman is Atman. So this eternal formless spirit is the human spirit. And what they think is that the souls are stuck in a long series of reincarnations. So Hindus seek to escape this long series of reincarnations by taming worldly desires so as to be absorbed into the Brahman. So basically, their kind of notion of a supreme being is not supreme. He's not distinct. We're not distinct. And our goal is to be fully absorbed into him. And we're absorbed into him by curbing all of our desires. And the process by which we get absorbed into Brahman in their mind is the law of karma. Karma is a technical term employed by Hindus and Buddhists to describe how one is entrapped into this cycle of reincarnation and by their actions, they're trying to escape this cycle of reincarnation. So it's really just how our actions can help us escape reincarnation. And of course, if the actions are bad or not sufficiently selfless, we get stay trapped in this cycle of reincarnation. And um, for the Hindus, salvation is not a vision of God. But rather, how do I destroy all desires to be absorbed into this really nothingness? And the reason they want that is because life is nothing but torment. So we see a very negative notion of life. It's just this evil to be escaped. We escape it by getting rid of all desire. That's a kind of a summary of the Hindu teaching. Yeah.
0: it it is interesting there there are little elements where i'm seeing some of the natural law sort of peeking exactly. through one one yep. part that i thought was fascinating was the idea that that the person's soul a- achieves a unity with god again they yep. have it very I, i'm not trying to be apologetic for hinduism but there are some elements of truth to that in and there to the body has to of be. christ etc
1: right there has to be some elements of truth in every religion insofar as their corruptions of revelation and corruptions of, of natural law principles. So nothing can be so corrupt that there's really no element of truth. Yeah. But of right. course, the modern notion is to try to see the good in them and praise the good. Whereas what we have to do is realize, no, um, they've corrupted the good and any little good they might have is so surrounded and corrupted that they're not leading anybody to God or to happiness. But you're right. And that's with all error. Chesterton says that the closer the air approaches the truth, the more dangerous it is because it's harder to right. identify. Now, of course, I right. think Hinduism and Buddhism is far no, enough away from the truth that it's easy to spot.
0: Right. Uh, I, I apologize. I'm not sure if you can hear the background noise. I have some people right outside where I'm recording at the moment. So apologies okay. for that. But um, let's move on then to the other big, uh, I would say, pagan religion, uh, at least popular nowadays, and that is Buddhism. Uh, There are some similarities between Hinduism and and Buddhism. You said they both stem from the same uh, Brahmanism, right?
1: Yes, exactly. So Buddhism is a reform of Hinduism and depends primarily on Hindu doctrine. So we'll see a lot of similarities. The Hindus often see the Buddhist and Buddhism as a subset of Hinduism, whereas the Buddhists energetically claim to be an original religion, at least some Buddhists, there's many forms as we'll see. But Buddhism is a non-theistic religion, in fact. It's more of a philosophy than a religion. They don't have any notion of, of God and no really notion of revelation at all. So, it was founded in the 6th century B.C. I won't dare pronounce the the name of of the original Buddha, but um, (laughs) you can put it in the notes, because I know I've tried a few times, and it's not quite um, working. But um, their, their founder, who became Buddha, which means enlightened one, lived from 563 B.C. to 483 B.C. It's claimed that he was a son of a king or prince in India who had a very privileged life and saw, you know, life is, you know, full of miseries in spite of all this, you know, privileges or wealth. And so he just kind of wandered around meditating, became a pragmatic philosopher and moralist, you know, just considering the human condition, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering. And he avoided all speculative, you know, considerations. It was really all practical, practical, pragmatic agnostic philosopher, and it's claimed that while he was meditating under a Bodhi tree, which is a type of fig tree in India, he became enlightened. Some special enlightenment came to him, and then afterwards he began to teach his Dharma, or doctrine, which includes the four noble truths, as it's said he called them. And before to go into his noble truths, we point out that Buddha wrote nothing down, and so he entrusted all of his teaching orally to his disciples. And the first time that we have any record of his writings is from 80 BC. So no robust tradition of manuscripts like we saw with the Bible. Right. And we could look maybe through the chief you know, Buddhist beliefs. Again, they're very much tied to Hindu beliefs, the same kind of cultural setting. But his four noble truths, which he held, which again echoes Hindus, life is suffering. And this for Buddhists is like the diagnosis, the diagnosis, life is suffering. And so if you want to talk about, you know, natural law principles, yeah, there is suffering in life or revelation. We have to suffer because of sin, but for them, life is a negative reality. Life is suffering. And why is there suffering? His second quote-unquote noble truth was because we have desires or cravings, and these are desires to be or desires not to be, but any desire or craving leads to suffering, and we must be cured of cravings and desires. So to be (laughs) free from suffering, we must detach ourselves from desires, and this is the, the third noble truth, this detachment from desires or cravings. Then his fourth truth is teaching us how to get to this detachment, how to be freed from suffering. And there he lays out an eightfold path to alleviate desires to end suffering. So we see, again, as a negative religion, life is suffering, desire is evil. I want to be free from suffering. How do I alleviate, end suffering? And the Eightfold Path includes the following, and we could use different adjectives here. We often see right views, right intentions, but I was also doing a little research and some say upright or attuned because they don't really have a strict notion of right and wrong, it's not that. It's attuned or, or upright views, that's one. We need these upright views Upright intentions, upright speech, upright actions, upright livelihood, upright efforts, mindfulness, and then you know, kind of right concentration. And so they have you know, these vague ideas of different elements of our life, intellectual life and our life with others. But again, there's no absolute truth. So right. you can't actually measure them against something concrete like natural law principles or revelation And in fact, for them, the right or the upright is really the middle path, which is open Mm -hmm. to all truths, which has no prejudices against others. So again, the final goal of Buddhism is to be free from all suffering by eradicating desires. Well, if we're trying to eradicate desires, we can't have really strong opinions on on truths. That that indicates a desire. And Mm -hmm. so for them, it's really take this middle path, the path of kind of least resistance, the path of least controversy. And they also have, you know, this idea of being, which again, in no way reflects what beings actually are in the Aristotelian Thomistic sense. You know, they say all things are transitory. There's nothing stable in this life. There is no self or personality. You know, we we don't even have this existence we think we have, this fixed person, which we are and everything is pain and suffering and so for the buddhist to accept existence of anything involves giving birth to its opposite for example if i accept to love i give birth to hatred if i accept joy i give birth to fear and so they have this dualism in their philosophy by which we don't want to love we don't want to hate we don't want joy we don't want fear it's really a, again an inhumane existence and the goal is what well nirvana which means putting out the fire to extinguish all desires so ex- to escape the cycle of reincarnation and there we see hinduism again extinguish desires escape this painful process of reincarnation of course the hindus they had more of a sense of god this brahman mm-hmm. the buddhists don't even have that Really, there's some Buddhists, as we'll see in a, in a moment, who have a little more sense of maybe some reward at the end. But if you're agnostic, there can't really be a reward for your good actions or punishment for your bad actions because there's no higher principle to reward and punish. Yeah.
0: Again, little elements, you know, the deprivation of of things, deprivation of, of you know, uh, comforts, joys, you know, things that we have in the Catholic faith, mm-hmm. uh, but, but just totally, totally skewed in, in the Buddhist sense of things. And exactly, uh, yeah, like you said, there's almost this, uh, mediocrity that's, that's baked into it. And again, I, I don't know much about anything. I'm just, just based on mm-hmm. what you've, you've been telling me. Um, yeah. there's this sense of almost fear based on it's, it's almost a fearful religion. Maybe that's not fair. I don't know.
1: Well, it's not fearful of an afterlife. It's more, I think, just a, I mean, there's no sense of the joy that God wants us to have because yeah. they they see suffering and evil as the essence of life. Yeah. And there's no real escape except going into nothingness. Whereas for a Catholic, yes, they're suffering and we'll see later why. But we can have joy even in suffering Right, Because we become more Christ-like in suffering. And we'll certainly have joined heaven if we're faithful to God's laws in this life. So in that sense, I would say it's a sad religion because they mm-hmm. have no hope of an afterlife.
0: So uh, Buddha was, well, who we call Buddha. The, the original the original founder of Buddhism was, what, about the 500s yes. uh, BC. Uh, a couple hundred years later, though, Buddhism starts to split, like a lot of religions do.
1: Frankly. Yes. Yes, it, within about two hundred years, it did split into two primary schools of thought, and these we will we will give the Hinayana or little vehicle. It was called. It tended towards pantheism, and emphasized and focused Buddha was just a human, and it did not keep that kind of idea idea of philanthropy and kindness, which. The original Buddhism held, you know, the Buddhists were known by this, you know, this politeness. Again, not based really in any principles except the law of karma and trying to escape reincarnation. And this this little vehicle it was called Hinayana took root in Sri Lanka and Burma. And then there was also the Mahayana, which is called the Great Vehicle or the translation Great Vehicle. It tends towards viewing Buddha as a god-like figure. so again, they're agnostics but they start seeing Buddha as godlike and a godlike figure who had compassion on men and we must imitate the compassion of God. so the practitioners of this great vehicle Buddhism, they seek not only to eliminate all personal suffering like all Buddhists but they do through human kindness this ideal idea of philanthropy try to reduce the sufferings of others and some of them even think that if you spend your life relieving people's sufferings there will be some type of afterlife called buddha fields they call them where enlightened buddhas go for some time after death so again there's different schools of thought within buddhism But it's interesting to see how their founder did not have this notion of the afterlife. But the afterlife is so innate, you know, this idea that we have a spiritual soul, right? We see with Aristotle and St. Thomas, well, we can know by reason alone we have a spiritual soul. If we have a spiritual soul, it's going to live on. So we see kind of the natural law reasserting itself in, in these Buddhists who start to think, well, there must be some some type of reward for being good, and they called it the Buddha Fields. Then under this Mahayana Buddhism, called the Great Vehicle Buddhism, we have what's common in the West, or we hear a lot of, it's Zen Buddhism. So it's an important school of Buddhism, which constitutes the mainstream monastic form. So these kind of these monks, these Buddhist monks who who we see with their different garb on, and it counts for about 20% of Buddhist and the Buddhist temples in Japan. And so really it just means meditation. So Buddhist monks who spend their life meditating and they're part of the, the great vehicle of Buddhist. So
0: wow, that's fascinating. Um, Hinduism and Buddhism um, seems to be, well, at least, at least Buddhism is, uh, I'm not sure about Hinduism, but it seems to have some appeal in the West. I know, um, I don't know how many of our listeners also like basketball, but Phil Jackson, the Lakers coach in the NBA, he's a, you know, famously a Zen Buddhist and he teaches mm-hmm. his players all about Zen Buddhism and, and mm-hmm. claims that it helps them play better. Uh, so there are celebrities who do that, and, you know, famous people. Is is mm-hmm. that, are, is it very common in the West or are those just a few outliers?
1: Well, since the seventies, you start to see it rise in the West, which makes sense because As Christianity is collapsing in the West, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, so to speak. So you do see a rise of of these Eastern religions starting kind of with the hippie movement in the 70s. Hinduism does not have the same appeal as Buddhism since it is so tied to the Indian caste system. Still, it tragically is spreading throughout the West as religious pluralism is spreading throughout the West. Because religious pluralism is a foundational principle of Hinduism. So religious pluralism is rooted in man's rejection of truth. Is there a reality which we can know with our mind? Is there a reality which imposes obligations on our mind? Is there a just God that we must give an answer to? So Hinduism, because it is so pluralistic, it has been adopted into the West and We can see, like you said, celebrities who adhere to to Hinduism. Buddhism has more of an appeal than Hinduism because it's not tied to a caste system like like the Hindus are. And also I think it may have more of an appeal because it's agnostic, agnostic rather than polytheistic. So I think now the trend more is to be agnostic than to be a polytheist. You know, the idea of having this whole canon of countless gods, and you're not sure, are these gods part of a greater god? That doesn't seem as trendy as saying, we just can't know God. We just can't know that there's an afterlife. And the Buddhists, of course, are agnostics. So that seems to have more of an appeal to people today. And one other reason I think Buddhism has an appeal is it proposes no mysteries, so it doesn't offend the rationalist. And doesn't believe there's any judgment by a god. So, agnostic, no mysteries, no judgment. But, something which Buddhism and Hinduism have in common, and that might be the real reason they're growing, is they promote a certain kind of peace, harmony, philanthropy. So, man wants peace in his life. He wants this tranquility of order. And, you know, especially with the Second Vatican Council and whatnot, there's a collapse of Christianity, and there's now more unrest both in society and in people's souls. So there are these real challenges people are facing. They're no longer presented with the true solutions of Christianity. So now you have the you know Buddhism coming along and saying, no transcendent God, no God that we can know, um, no afterlife, no morality that you have to absolutely follow but we want to live well we want to be friends with our fellow mankind we want to have a peaceful relationships with our fellow mankind so people are attracted by that we want to have a certain peace in our life yet unfortunately hinduism and buddhism propose a peace of disorder because they try to have this good relations with their fellow man and fellow creatures you know they worship you know things below them as well so I was, you know, watching one Hindu who had converted and she said before she converted, you know, every time she passed even an ant anthill, she would stop and bow to the anthill to reverence the divine and the ant anthill. So they try to have this peaceful relation with everything, but not with God, in fact, because they have no notion of their dependence on God and that they owe God something. Mm-hmm. And so we see, you know, why it appeals to people. It's non-dogmatic, non-judgmental, something we, you know— Hate today is judgment. Well, right. non judgmental. And right. another reason that they've probably gained a lot of influence in the 70s was because of a document in Vatican II called Nostra Etate, which sought to defend the good in, in false religions. So, again, we already spoke about that briefly. It's one thing to see there are some elements of the natural law in false religions. Or there are, you know, corruptions of true religion and false religion. But they they stole those things from the true religion. We still have to convert them and bring them into the true religion. But even before Vatican II, everybody probably knows the, you know, Thomas Merton, that Trappist, you know, monk, who had a very, you know, unusual life from being, you know, non-Christian to Christian to, to very sinful, publicly sinful life to converting to Trappist monk. But he wrote many books, had a lot of influence. But you know, before he died, he said that the goal of his life was to become, you know, a good Buddhist. I want to be as good a Buddhist as I can, and so that had a lot of influence on people as well. As you have this, this Catholic monk telling people that his goal is to become the best Buddhist possible while remaining Catholic, and so this syncretism mm-hmm. of Merton was possible because Buddhism and Hinduism are built on syncretism. They have no doctrinal or moral absolutes. They see Christianity as as a possible option, as a step towards, you know, a religious experience, which then of course leads to controlling desires. So they're syncretist, but modern Christians, unfortunately, modern Catholics, Thomas Merton, they've lost any sense of a true religion Revealed by God, which has strict parameters, and that we must be members of this religion to be saved. So, and I think that another reason why so many people play with Buddhism and Hinduism is they have lost a sense of revelation, and that God has spoken, and that God has given us the way to heaven, and that we must adhere to this way to go to heaven.
0: Yeah. So that's going through those those specifics and and what the beliefs are. Can we just do a kind of quick point-by-point recap of what is it that is wrong with these systems, just so that we can kind of have that clear in our mind, Father? Good. That's a good way to kind of wrap it up is,
1: so Hinduism is essentially polytheistic. They believe in many gods. They deny there's one true God. Buddhism is agnostic. They deny we can even know there is a God. So they deny the existence of God. God who is creator of heaven and earth. So that's that's critical because we know by reason and by faith there is a God who is creator of heaven and earth. The Hindus' belief is that all things are indistinguishable from one another. They're Brahma and all things. They're just one reality, which again, the notion even of being is very ephemeral, but there is no distinction. And this is rejected by the Nicene Creed. This is rejected by, you know, the creed. You know, we believe in God, creator of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible. Likewise, Hinduism is pantheistic. Man, creatures, ants, we all have this divinity. You know, this idea that we're part of God or somehow in God. We're not creatures who owe God anything. They also believe that there's many paths to the same end of nothingness or nirvana. Whereas we say there's one path to heaven and many paths to hell, right? So they have this, this, this idea that contradictory ideas are somehow you know mutually enriching, which we hear again with modern churchmen. So it's a contradiction to say that all religious traditions lead to the same end. Um, to assert that two conflicting positions are, in fact, correlative is irrational. You know, if you have two things which say the opposite, and you say, no, these are mutually enriching, it's a denial of reason. So, Buddhism, Hinduism, doesn't only divide, deny revelation, but also defies reason, and leads again to pluralism. Consequently, they deny any fixed natural law. They have ideas of philanthropy, kindness, you know, treat people well, something of the golden rule may be there of the ancients, but no real fixed natural law that you must follow, which obliges all mankind. And ultimately, they're both negative religions. How do we escape suffering? How do we escape existence, really, by just, you know, entering nirvana, by having no desires? Ultimately, in a sense, they're scandalized by the age-old question of evil, which you already had an episode which touched some of those things, is why evil? Because they're both built on that. You know, Hinduism does not have a founder. You know, there's no founder. It's, you know, this these kind of religious traditions, cultural traditions in India, polytheism. You know, Buddhism has at least a founder, but no God. But they're both equally scandalized by the question of suffering. And their goal is how to escape suffering. And it's a question which is difficult, suffering, but it's a question which, as you've already seen, the church answers. It's a question which Revelation answers. And Revelation, of course, gives the proper answer, which will bring us not just an escape from some suffering, but true happiness.
0: So the church then has, I, I guess we can make a pretty clear distinction between the church's answer towards suffering and, and towards, well, against suffering, towards joy, a, a solution for suffering compared to these pagan religions, right? Exactly.
1: Yes, the church cares about truth as we must care about truth. You know, truth is the conformity of our mind to reality and reality at times is, is difficult, but the church seeks to understand reality and to help us conform our lives to reality. And that reality includes an all-powerful and all-good God who created all things from nothing. The fact that God created man with a free will, which is a huge responsibility. Man violated that responsibility and committed sin, original sin, which passes to all mankind. And because of sin, there is suffering. Yes, suffering flows from the fact that we've offended God But God, who is all good, provides a solution, which is redemption. And he sends his son to suffer for us so we can be redeemed. Objective redemption. Christ dies for us on the cross. Subjective redemption. The suffering, which is a consequence of sin, stays with us. But we're able to supernaturalize it by suffering with Jesus Christ through the sacraments. So we see that suffering is part of life, but it's supernaturalized. And so the church teaches that suffering is not part of God's, you know, most perfect plan, so to speak. But suffering is necessary because God willed a universe where man could love him freely and therefore could sin. And we, imitating Jesus Christ, suffer supernaturally. And we see the church goes far beyond just teaching us the golden rule of, you know, treat your neighbors you want to be treated. The church does teach that, as did the Old Testament. But the church goes much further, as Christ himself said, love one another as I have loved you. Which means to suffer for others, so others can have the truth, so others can go to heaven. So people think that Christianity does not have the answers. They need to look at the traditional teachings of the church by which we accept all revelation, the truths of reason, we realize that suffering is redemptive and we're willing to suffer and help others. That goes much further than the Buddhists or Hindus could ever dream of that by our suffering, we are meriting grace from an all loving God to save others. And Christianity, of course, the focus is not me escaping my misery, it's worshiping God who is all good restoring my relationship with my Father in heaven through the works of Jesus Christ. So, right reason and revelation teach us that man does have a will and that desires are good. If God is creator, he created me with the ability to desire, he must be good to desire. Whereas the Buddhists and Hindus think all desire is evil. Now, God, who's good, created us with faculties by which we desire. Therefore, it's good to desire. But because of original sin, our desires are easily, you know, sidetracked or derailed to do evil things. Therefore, by the virtuous life, with help of grace, we need to constantly use virtue to desire what is good. And once we're united to the good, then we have happiness, is what the church teaches. So the church teaches a really positive view of human nature. It is good, but wounded. Through virtue, we reach happiness, not nothingness.
0: Right. And that is the beautiful thing. Instead of trying to escape suffering, we use suffering. It is a benefit to us.
1: Yep. We use it to be united to our Lord Jesus Christ and to God's will, whom we know is infinitely good.
0: Yeah. Well, we, we've spent most of the time talking about Buddhism, Hinduism. Those are the two biggies in the in the pagan world. But as we close up, Father, can we can we mention just a few other uh, pagan religions that people should be aware of?
1: Yes, there's, today there's much neo-paganism, so new paganism, you know, Wicca, witchcraft, nature worship, and parents should be aware of these things. You know, in stores, they, they sell these different things were online for witchcraft, and it's not innocent, it, it's, it's from the devil, this witchcraft. We also see kind of the paganism of of nature worship, which leads to kind of the ideology that man must be sacrificed to save the environment, to save planet Earth. There's a paganism there. You know, population has to be reduced to save planet Earth. Well, Mm -hmm. natural law, you know, Revelation tells us that the things under man were created for man so man can serve God. So God gave us this beautiful universe, we're custodians of the universe, we're meant to use it well so as to glorify God. And by us using creatures well, we give glory to God, but all the things below us are at our service so we can worship God. You know, so we see this neo-paganism in this worship of the environment by which man has to be sacrificed, and even you know, abortions promoted because of this, man has to be sacrificed to save the planet. Yeah. And unfortunately, these elements, you know, the Pachamama, different things, you know, the different summons on on climate change are introduced even into the church. So we see elements of paganism brought into the Catholic Church, which is very tragic. We already saw with Nostriotate and Thomas Merton kind of bringing, seeing the good in other religions, and Thomas Merton went further to actually try to become a good Buddhist. But now it's paganism and neo-paganism is is really spoken about in the church. And it's very tragic. And that's probably one reason why people are confused about the question. So, but like all the paganism of old, neo-paganism ultimately is the worship of of the devil. That's found in sacred scripture. We think of St. David. For the Lord is great and exceedingly to be praised. He is to be feared above all of the gods. For all of the gods, the Gentiles, are devils, but the Lord made the heavens. So it comes down to there's one true God who's a personal God whom we must worship. This God has given us reason and revelation. We must use reason and revelation to go back to God through the life of the sacraments and charity. And uh, all pagans you know, reject this, whether it be the Romans, whether it be the neo-pagans today. The neo pagans today are probably more culpable than the pre Christian pagans insofar as the pre Christian pagans rejected, you know, primitive revelation, patriarchal revelation. The pagans of today are rejecting Christian revelation. You know, right. the Word of God was made flesh, came in this world, spoke with human words to teach us the mysteries of God. So it's really a tragic thing to see people leaving Christianity, by Christianity I mean the one true church Christ founded, to look for solutions in these false religions which are all recycling ancient errors of animism and polytheism. And nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said. are right. all recycling different errors with the same consequence. Man is empty, man is alone, man is unhappy, and man is cut off from God. Whereas the church gives us a way to be happy, supernaturalizes suffering, so we'll be happy, imperfectly, but happy in this life, and truly happy in heaven. And therefore, of course, we want to help bring people out of paganism into the Catholic Church.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Father, this has been a great intro into uh, you know our look at at other other religious ideas, um, and there was so much, so much there. Obviously, there's there's a lot in this whole area we've just barely scratched the surface yes um one quick question i have in closing Uh, let's say you visit uh, japan or china Mm -hmm. indonesia something like that and uh there's a ancient hindu temple and you want to go and tour it would that be wrong as long as obviously you 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 cannot participate in worship you can't light incense you don't you know do anything uh, in front of the the statues etc but if it just from an artistic you know, architectural point of view, you want to go in and tour it. Uh, Would you allow that as a priest or or someone ask you for that advice? What would you say, Father?
1: Insofar as you're there, you know, admiring what's true art. So like Mm St. Thomas says, there's, you know, harmony, lucidity, and proportion. So insofar as some of these structures qualify as true art, we can certainly admire that insofar as if a thing follows the golden rule of architecture. There's something mm-hmm. appealing. And insofar as it does that, it reflects in some way the the natural beauties God has created. So we can always admire beauty in that sense. Mm-hmm. You know, Hindu temples, of course, are full of false gods. Um, and the Buddhist temples, again, don't really have a sense of God except those who deify Buddha. So there's going to be a lot of, you know, elements of paganism built in there. And we're not going to condone or, you know, appreciate that which is evil, but mm-hmm. we can appreciate the harmony, proportion, lucidity to the extent the structures have them.
0: Yeah, okay, interesting. Yeah, I've, I've, I was just looking at a, a book recently, of you know, Shinto Temples, which is a kind of Japanese derivation of it. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, they, they are very pretty. They're very striking from the outside. Uh, you know, the inside, I don't know that I'd want to go in. Mm-hmm. There's, there is, sent, a, I have gone into a temple like that before. And, you know, I think there's something about your Catholic sense. If you're a baptized Catholic and you go into a pagan temple, there is a real sense of uneasiness. At least I felt that when I walked mm-hmm. in, it was like not scared but eerie. There was almost this eerie feeling. Yeah.
1: We know in Spain when you read the life of you know Ferdinand. This is Muslims. So you'll see this later, but you know they would go in and immediately convert the. The mosque into a Catholic church and go through a whole rite of purifying it. Mm -hmm. The reason was is because false worship was being offered there, and Mm -hmm. we should not be comfortable, you know, in these places where the devil is being worshipped. It's, you know, all these all these pagan gods are devils, and the incense they burn is false worship to the devil. So again, we shouldn't be comfortable in those settings at all. But insofar as we, you know, abstracting from that and looking at lucidity, proportion, harmony. Again, mm-hmm. we can't we can't object to that per se, but I wouldn't you know spend any time in there. That's for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, thanks for indulging the uh, the art nerd in me on on that question, Father. No I appreciate it. And no thanks problem. again for taking the time to put this all together. It was fascinating. So uh, until next time, Father, uh, have a wonderful weekend.
1: Thank you, Andrew. God bless
0: you. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.